Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Winning Digital Customers Podcast. And I have a fantastic guest with me today, a friend for many years, Shelly Palmer, who you probably know who he is, I'm guessing. But just in case you don't, he has been a thought leader in the world of digital and digital transformation really for the last couple of decades. He has a column in Adweek, which is widely read. He commentates about business and digital on CNN and CNBC. He speaks regularly on these topics on Good Day New York. He gets called by the CXOs and very often the CEOs of many Fortune 500 companies when they need advice on what's going on in the world. He is often involved in NAB and gives top-level executive tours to key executives, again, to help them understand what's going on in the world of technology and how is that going to affect their business. He's a kind of a futurist, I would even go so far as to say. We'll see if he agrees with that title. So, so many things we could talk about. But with that, let me again warmly welcome my guest, Shelly Palmer. And Shelly, anything you want to add by way of your background for the audience today? No, I think you should just call my mom and read the same thing over again. <laughs> yeah, that's outstanding. Thanks. We do a lot of work at CES and at some of the big trade shows. And it, that's, of course, been a little bit tough this past year. So during that time, we've spent an inordinate amount of time online. And as everyone has, thing is, that's not going away. So we we are really excited about the amount of hybrid productions that we're doing now. And it's it's very exciting. It's an amazing time. Uh, in digital transformation, because as you know, over the last 12 to 18 months, we've probably seen a decade's worth of social innovation on top of the technological innovation. So people have caught up to the tech that's been around. We could have done this podcast 10 years ago, but nobody would have been able to watch it the way they're going to watch it now. So that's the super exciting part. Yeah, I got nothing to add to the bio, but I would like you to call my mom if you could. Absolutely. Just send me the number. I'll be happy to call her. I'm sure we could have a great conversation. No question about that. <laughs> Well, let's talk about that topic of digital transformation and how rapidly the world has changed. I know that you get paid big bucks to go into CEOs and answer the question, what do I need to be thinking of now? But I'm just going to ask you to tell our audience for free, if you wouldn't mind, what do they need to be thinking about now as the world is changing so rapidly? Well, there's a couple of things that are really different. You know what they are viscerally, but you may not understand what's actually happening. We hear a lot of politics and a lot of politicians talk about reigning in big tech. I don't think everybody fully understands why that's important. The tools the government's using probably aren't the right tools. Antitrust may not be the right tool set to go after a Facebook. It might not be the right tool set to go after Google, although Europe seems to be doing okay that way. But our data does not belong to us at the moment. And this transformation has been a long time coming. We've got incumbent, monstrous tech companies. In many cases, they're benign, and all they're trying to do is put the right ad in front of the right person in the right place at the right time and get them to, to engage and thereby spend more, whether it's on the advertiser's products or whether it's on their own product. But we're at a point now where it's entirely possible that normal people can take back their data dominion from the large players. And this is going to be made possible by various Web 3.0 apps that are about to show up pretty much everywhere. It's all blockchain related, it's stuff we've been working on really hard the last couple of years. Some people refer to it as Web 3.0. And it's not 
one technology, Howard, that's bringing this together. It's this incredible sentiment, this will of the people that says, look, we have been abused from a data perspective and we need our rights back. And you saw it in Europe with GDPR. In China, they do it differently, right? In China, it, it's the rule of law is the government gets all the data. Here in the United States, all of our data is concentrated in a dozen companies and that's got to stop. And people know it has to stop and the tools to make it stop are happening now. And that's the transformation that is coming. And I think it's going to come way faster than most people think it will. Uh, certainly people in business who rely on that data have to know that there are forces afoot that are going to change the way you turn data into action. And if you don't have a lot of first party connections and a lot of ways to accumulate that data yourself, you're probably on the wrong end of the history. Yeah. So I can see the potential benefits to the consumer to theoretically have more control over their data, but I worry, and as somebody who works with a lot of businesses on how to reach customers and some of the companies we work with are giants and titans and others are more middle market. Is there a risk that this actually could be worse for the customer because it creates a situation where, like you said, if you don't have a lot of first party data, if some of these new laws and new restrictions from Apple, we get into a situation where the customer can't get the level of personalized targeted services and advertising that they get today, might we have to take a step back in terms of the convenience and personalization in order to get that level of additional data control? And is that necessarily a benefit to the customer? So of all of the things that may go wrong, that's the least worrisome. The reason being that a smart marketer knows that I will give you $10 off for every $100 you spend is going to beat, I'll give you 20% off of whatever, because no one can do the percentage calculation in their head and everyone knows what 10 bucks is. It's like, the more you buy, the more you save, coupon is always going to work. And even in the broadest audience. The danger is that because we're not allowed to ask certain questions because of various regulations about, and you can use as a proxy for my, argument, what you can and can't ask in an employment interview. Just leave it there. There's certain questions you can ask and certain questions you can't ask, and everyone in business knows what they are, and I don't need to re-articulate them here. But I can't ask those questions, and so I need a proxy. I have to have a proxy. So what proxy do I use? I might use your credit score, which I ask for. I might use your zip code, because where you live might tell me something about what the propensity you have to be from what kind of family or what ethnicity you might be, though I can't ask those questions. There's no feedback loop to correct that. And if the data is restricted or if the government regulations are done by people in policy think tanks as opposed to people in business, they can restrict things by accident without understanding the consequences of those restrictions in a data-driven world. And therefore, they will force proxies to occur without real feedback loops without places to get your grievances heard or, or fixed. So imagine the following, like I see the danger of overregulation. I see the danger of people changing the rules, if you will, from open season to, okay, let's restrict. If some coder somewhere decides, you know what, I know it's illegal, but I'm going to use credit scores to figure out like if this person's going to be a good hire or not as a proxy. And what, how am I going to do that? I'm going to look at not causation, I'm going to look at correlation. I'm going to basically run a, some math and I'm going to look at the analytics. I'm going to say, 
this number of people who have this credit score will be with us for two years. And if the credit score dips below blank, they're only going to be with us for six months. And therefore, it's so expensive to hire someone for six months. I'm going to, you have to have a credit score higher than this in order for you to be considered for a job. Otherwise, you throw your resume out. Okay. Is that good or bad? I don't know. It worked for that person on that day who wrote that bit of code. Where is it commented? How does it get out of there? And if your resume ends up in the garbage can, the virtual garbage can, how do you get it out of there? There's no one to go see. But if you can't ask a question, the question that the person wanted to ask who was writing the code, which is, how long are you planning to stay here? There's a million questions you could ask, which are restricted at the moment and will be even more restricted by data collection regulations. If you can't ask the question you really want to ask and you're going to fake it by trying to find something that correlates to it in some way, as opposed to causes it, and then there's no way to fix that, that's the danger we're going to get in. And that will make it much worse for consumers. So I agree with your thesis. This could be way worse for consumers, but not for any reason that a normal person would ever think would make it way worse. So to make it way worse is you have no transparency into the process and the overregulation or the regulation will never be able to take into consideration the kinds of data that we are used to analyzing because most people don't know what it even means. Anybody listening wants to get a good sense of what level of insanity we're talking about, go download, if you have an Apple Watch, uh, or an iPhone, go download the XML tool set out of the App Store and just download one day's data about yourself from Apple Health from your iPhone. You won't even believe how much data is there. You literally will not be able to comprehend the size of that XML file and the 70,000 data points they took in the 24-hour period about you and your heart rate and your breathing and your where you were and who you were and how you were and what you ate and how you walked, where your phone was at the time you walked. You go up the stairs and downstairs. You will not believe the amount of data. And now imagine that in some way, some of that data is being used to calculate your propensity to be healthy or not healthy and now restrict somebody's availability of part of that data set. Not all of it, just part of it even though you need all of it, because otherwise they wouldn't take it, or you need none of it. But one way or the other, what you can't do is restrict it willy-nilly and think that you've done a good thing for anybody. These are the kinds of insanities, Howard, that are coming. When people talk about digital transformation, they never talk about the deep part of this because no one really thinks about the The engineers know, but the administrators don't. And the, most of the senior executives, unless they're comp side people or unless they've really done deep data analytics over their lifetime, we live in a world where there's so much data that uh, we don't control. It, it's crazy. Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance has been called the must-have guide to saving your company and is available now for Kindle, Nook, and Apple Books, or in hardcover. Visit wdc.ht order to get your copy today. It's a very interesting problem because if we restrict the data too much, then we potentially lose some of the benefits. But I hear what you're saying. It becomes scary to think how our data might be used. It makes me think the, er the earliest computers, they just did whatever we told them to. You know, we say, add these two numbers together, it would. Then we got to computers that we programmed to tell us what to do, right? Like my GPS in my car, right? It tells me to turn left. You know, I turn left. I I'm now doing what it tells me. And now we have this third level to me, which is like the tyranny of the algorithm, you know, and the first ones were the SEO people. But now it's not just SEO. It's, it's all kinds of social stuff. And and we have to answer the question, not just how do we do what the computer tells us to do, 
but how do I get the computer to like me? That's really the question. And like what you're describing is algorithms are used more and more for hiring, for performance management and jobs, and obviously for other things, insurance and other things. We all become like SEO people in the sense we're all kind of going, huh, how does this algorithm work? And how can I change something about myself? And it just scares me because I think of like the Terminator, you know, or something, a world where we are beholden to our computer overlords. Obviously, on the one hand, that's a bit absurd. But when we all start spending more of our time and attention trying to figure out how to get algorithms to like us, you got to wonder, like, have we traveled farther than we thought? Not only is that not absurd, it's factual. If you are on Microsoft Teams for work and you work in the United States, 100% of what you do on Microsoft Teams is owned by your employer. How many invites did you send? What did you write in chat? Did you participate or not participate? Was your camera on or off? Do not be surprised when your HR review includes your team's score, whatever that is. It's down to the keystroke, like how much did you type? And can it tell even if, if you're on your calls, are you paying attention? Are you looking away? You know, are you multitasking? That's surveillance that you sign up for because you know, your boss can do that, your company can do that. Now multiply that by what happens in the outside world. And one of the things that you said, I think probably needs a little expansion. Yes, the computer is telling us what to do, but it's not just the computer, it is also the network topology. So like, if you think about ways, you know, you're talking about where the computer telling you where to go, right? If you think about ways, right now it's doing its best to save you a couple of minutes. And it's got one, goal, right? It's told, find the shortest route, find the least amount of traffic, get me there. Well, that's because it's, it's a beneficial tool set at the moment. And we, we believe it's trying to do the best. If I wanted to delay or change traffic patterns, if the algorithm decides it would save group C five minutes, if I delayed group B by one minute and group A by two minutes, and someone's in an ambulance in group B. For the algorithm, it, it makes total sense to delay those groups in order to, there's enough traffic and it knows, but it's not taking into consideration anything that might be consequence of that other than its one and only goal, which is to save you time. And so we think we can control these algorithms as simple as they may be. Wow, I just wanna save everybody as much time as possible. We're always assuming it's just gonna route you to the, to the fastest route, but there's enough people on ways where it can divert enough people where it will actually change what's going on on the road, right? And so that is a different level of, of we're following the computer. That is a different level. Yeah, you have free will, but not if you turned on ways and you trust it to give you the shortest route. At what cost? At whose cost? And there isn't a decision made by an algorithm that doesn't have a set of consequences that work that way. People just don't necessarily come to that conclusion until they're on the wrong end of it. It's a great point. And it's like, if we think about what happened to Google, version one of Google was just show you the most relevant results. Version two of Google was show you the most relevant results. But before that, we're going to tell you about the ones that paid us. Imagine you open a new mall and you tell Waze, I'll pay you money to divert traffic to go down the street where my mall is because I want more walk-in traffic. I mean, that yeah, that's insidious, but it's obvious. And as you know, Howard, more than as well as I do, I mean, your amazing book about digital customers, Google's not a search engine. It's a very highly tuned advertising engine and search is the bait it uses to lure you in. They translate your intention into wealth 
by getting you to click on stuff. And if it doesn't get you to click, it doesn't go on Google. The search only has to be as better than Bing, better than Brave. It doesn't have to be any better than that just to keep you on Google. They're not a search engine. They've never been a search engine. They have been an advertising optimization engine for the last 20 years. And by the way, they're the best in the world at it. What, 160 billion a year? I mean, some number like that, they're the best in the world at it. But you can't call that a search engine because at this point, they don't deliver your search, the, the search results you're looking for. They deliver the things that enrich their shareholders. And they're not even bashful about it. <laughs> they're, not, they're not even trying to, it's not even an infomercial anymore. I just tell you, here it is. This is, we, click on this, we make money. That's what it is. Well, scary times. What should companies be doing about it? Are there certain technologies or certain approaches to digital? Uh, you've always been a, somebody who's been kind of a harbinger of, hey, guys, this is where we need to be looking next. This is where the puck is going. I know you and I have talked a lot about blockchain recently. What do you think are the key kind of components of if you've been kind of following a, a path over the last few years of think, OK, obviously mobile apps, probably some conversational commerce, perhaps this is these are sort of some of the mainstream chatbots. What's next? You were talking about some of these things when they weren't necessarily on the top of everyone's mind. You were placing them there. Where do you think companies need to be thinking about over the next few years? What should people be looking at right now with their R&D teams? Efficiency, productivity in ways that are empowered by pattern matching and uh, algorithmic tools, RPA, and all of that uh, robotic process automation, all, all of the things that go along with that. It was a lot of legacy systems that literally can't be transformed. You need to rebuild them. You just can't change what these things are, not in the context of, of running a business. And so increasing productivity and efficiency, I think this is a perfect time. A lot of companies through COVID and the pandemic did spend a lot of time evaluating what do our workers do? You know, what does a hybrid workforce look like? What are our work from home policies going to be? How do we enrich their lives and enrich our community? And, you know, what are the human costs of doing business? Obviously, we had a tremendous amount of awareness about diversity and inclusion. I think that's critically important. And it's part of a larger idea, which is this holistic view of my employees as a, a true asset, human capital, as opposed to a human resource where people are incredibly valuable and they are the organization. And so I think that the innovation which we concentrate on the most is giving people the tools they need to be productive in the way that they need to be productive for the organization. There's a lot of goodness in there. And I've seen small inklings, again, much, much of it brought on by the pandemic, but small inklings across our entire roster of clients where People are, they're going to work from home three days a week or four days a week. The reason they didn't want to come back to the office to begin with was that they're actually better set up at home. They've got better broadband. They have a better computer. They're a quiet space that's not in an open plan environment. Like they literally will be more productive from home than they will in the office. That can't be. So if I'm thinking about transformation, if I'm thinking about innovation, I've got to look at my office space. I've got to look at the way that I, what tools do I, what are the tooling that I'm giving to my crowd? Am I working with in a SaaS model? Can I onboard a computer in just a couple seconds? Do I need a day with IT to like format a computer or somebody? What's the way that I can allow people to best interface to I, so I get the most out of my people? Because people are the most expensive thing, period. In any business, like great talent costs you the most because it's worth the most and you can't hamstring the talent now. And so we're working with most of our clients on what is a hybrid meeting? What kind of video production tools do you need? What kind of audio production tools do you need? How do you make the people at home not feel like second-class citizens? How do you 
make those teams as productive or more productive than they used to be? And how can you then do the best possible job for your customers in the same exact way because the tools are all exactly the same. This becomes part of recruiting, it becomes cultural. These are the transformations that we didn't think we were gonna to have to make three years ago, two and a half years ago that are really clearly now. So, and, and there may not be obvious because we're all coming back and everyone's so excited to be back, Howard. Like, I, I'm so stoked to go to restaurants and to parties and I'm not wearing a mask because I'm fully vaccinated. Mostly everybody else is fully vaccinated. And even if they're not, I'm vaccinated, so I don't really care. I mean, I'm not injured. They may be in danger. I'm not. And I feel sad for people who are in this other political camp where they feel like, you know, there's some, some political reason that they wouldn't want to get a vaccine. Or, but one way or the other, this time is exuberant for many because we're, we're back and it's fun to be back. A lot of the companies that we work with are losing sight of the very important lessons from the last 18 months. Yeah, we're back right now. We're not better prepared to be back than we were. And so some of our organizations are redoing the floor plans. They're redoing the technological installs. They are redoing some, what does it mean to take a meeting? What is a meeting supposed to be? Who needs to be there and how? Just because we love to innovate technology, which is what we do, we love to innovate. Oh, we have a brand new algorithm. We have a brand new way to collect data. We have a new tool. Like some of the most important innovation that is going to happen this year is social innovation and innovation that ordinarily it's workflow and process. Like, you know, think about innovating it. It, it evolves over time, but there are bureaucracies. Why do we do it that way? Oh, well, it's been done that way 20 years. Well, why? Well, because Sally once did this 20 years ago and it became a thing and everybody does it now. And that you use a green pencil for this. It's like, really? Green pencil? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been that way forever. Like, no, not now. Now is not the time for the green pencil from 20 years ago. Now is the time to evaluate every single process and workflow and say, in the 21st century, what can be automated? What can't be automated? Where can I partner with AI or where can I partner with a statistical machine learning tool set or a pattern matching tool set? Where are those things going to buy me some efficiency I, I could not otherwise have? And where does experience and wisdom and where is the corporate culture best going to uh, create value? That's the hardest thing for people to do. It's never had to be done. No one's ever had to do it before. It's always been a weekend team building exercise. We're going to have a retreat, you know, every quarter and do this. Yeah. No, now's the time to really think this through. And as you bring everybody back, that's where this immense amount of, of value creation is going to occur. And then I have to say the other answer to your question, Howard, from a what's next? What's next is pretty obvious. The timing is not obvious. What's next is a world where more and more and more and more and more and more data is created, collected, analyzed, and turned into action. There's no version of the world where there's less data tomorrow than there is today. From every piece of IoT, from every electric car, from every everything that's generating data, everything is, there's no more new media. There's no more digital media. 100% of the world we live in is data-driven. And that needs to be internalized at every company because companies that get that right are going to win and companies that don't get that right are going to get skewered hard. And there's no way you survive in a data-driven world without data and without the ability to turn that data into action. And however you need to do that, whether it doesn't matter if it's blockchain or smoke signals, it really doesn't. It doesn't matter if it's carrier pigeons or location data off a phone. However you get that data and turn it into action, 
being efficient and organized and brilliant at that, that's the winning combination. That's where the productivity really shines. And there's no getting around that. There's just no getting around it. So this is the boring part of the innovation time. We haven't, we don't have quantum computers yet. We don't have uh, augmented reality eyeglasses replacing our handsets. So there's no whiz bang, cool new toy to play with. This is where efficiency and workflow and process and you know data science start to shine. That's what's going to happen over the next couple, three years as we wait for the next wave of technology that's going to be brought to us by more miniaturization, greater density of transistors, transistors on silicon, new kinds of computing, and new kinds of optics and new kinds of power management. And that, that's all in the works. It's all in the works. We're just going to have to wait for it. And while we do, we have to compete. Can't get enough of winning digital customers? You can find even more content and video versions of the podcast episodes on our YouTube channel. Visit wdc.ht slash YouTube to subscribe. As you say it, it sounds undeniable that all those things, how, how, could, it, how could it be otherwise? I think it's a good, uh, a good turning point to talk about blockchain. So first of all, I want to tee up. Shelly's written many books. I don't know, five, six books at least, right, Shelly? Maybe, maybe more. And for many years, been very influential through his books, amongst many other things. And his most recent book is called Blockchain, Cryptocurrency, NFTs, and Smart Contracts, an Executive Guide, The World of Decentralized Finance. That's a, is now a best-selling book. Mark Cuban said of it, it is a crisp, easy to understand overview of crypto and DeFi, decentralized finance. So that's a pretty strong uh, a recommendation right there as somebody who's obviously a leader in thinking about the application of technology to business. I definitely encourage and recommend everyone to check out this book. It's available on Amazon and I'm sure other places as well. I'd like to just uh, ask you to talk a little about Shelly. One of the things when I heard you speak about blockchain, it really got my wheels spinning because for a lot of people, I think blockchain kind of equals Bitcoin. You know, I think it came about from Bitcoin and now other alternative payment systems. And what I really took from some of the remarks I heard you speak about recently was that, yes, while this is an important application, it's so much more. So for our audience who, who may not even want to admit that they're not totally clear on what the hell blockchain actually is, other than a cool buzzword, would you give them an overview of what it is and, and what do you think they need to be thinking about it in terms of where there might be business applications? Sure. So blockchain is analogous, any blockchain. There are many of them. There's a Bitcoin blockchain. There's the Ethereum blockchain. There are hundreds of other blockchains. There's nothing unique about one over the other. They all work exactly the same way conceptually, although they're technologically very different. And in many cases, there are newer technology blockchains and older technology blockchains. Bitcoin is on the oldest of the uh, blockchains. It's on, on the original blockchain. You can think of a blockchain as a block of granite that you write on big block of granite. And there's some things about blocks of granite and writing in blocks of granite that are important to understand. First of all, blocks of granite last forever. You write something, you carve it in stone. It literally is carved in stone. So we were looking at carvings from 3000 years ago. They're easy to read. So that's one thing. It's kind of forever. Two, you can always tell if someone's altered something written in stone. It's really easy to tell that something's been altered. And also blocks of stone do not care what you write on them. They, they don't, they have no interest in or ability to care. Blockchain is exactly like that. It's immutable, meaning it's going to be around forever, theoretically. It, it is uh, very, very easy, in, instantly easy to tell the blockchain's been altered. So fraud is instantly obvious. And the blockchain does not care what you write on it. And that's contrary to the popular myth that because something's on a blockchain, it helps you with truth or whatever. No, it doesn't do any of that. 
If you put a lie on the blockchain, it's just forever. So what goes on a blockchain is immutable. It's not necessarily true. It's just going to be there. And it's verified by everyone. So you have a lie that's verified by everyone. It's the same as having the truth verified by everybody. Whatever goes on a blockchain is immutable, meaning it's just there forever. And you can tell if it's been altered. So you know if it's fraudulent, which means that for a coin like Bitcoin, it's great because you know a coin is real or a coin is fake. That's important. Or a transaction is real or a transaction is fake. That's easy to tell. So that's a blockchain. But the blockchain is not the interesting part of all this. It's part of it. But it's, and, and you can read in, uh, online how blockchains work if you're so inclined. There are many, many, many good explanations. I have one in my little book, but, you know, that's simple. But, you, you know, there are, there are plenty of demos online. So a couple of really good videos also online. If you like three blue, one brown on YouTube, there's a great blockchain video there. They explain it beautifully. The other part of this that's much more interesting is smart contracts. And smart contracts are just like normal contracts. They're the same. The difference is that a smart contract can be digitally satisfied. And when the terms of the, and conditions of the contract are met digitally, then something can happen automatically. And so you're actually building a contract that functions automatically. That might be something as simple. I'm going to complete a sale. And when the sale is complete, the buyer pays cryptocurrency in. When that crypto arrives, it's split up. 80% goes to the seller, 10% goes to the agent, and 10% goes to the original owner as a royalty. That could be the smart contract. And then every subsequent sale forever and ever and ever, whenever that smart contract receives money and its ownership changes, it triggers those payments and they're automatic. You don't have to worry about it. So uh, how amazing is that for a royalty? How amazing is that for a ticket broker? How fantastic is that for the estate of Picasso if they could have an NFT or a, uh, a smart contract around the sale? So maybe you don't, you don't need a lawyer, you don't need escrow. You don't need a bunch of people in a conference room. You just say, this is automatically happening. Whenever money comes into this, it automatically gets divided this way. Or once I record that I've sent you this money, then you have to sell me your house. There's no way I can give you the money and then you take the money and say, not that you would ever do this, Shelly, but you know, no, I'm not gonna give you my house. Instead, it's like, nope, we've got a contract. Once I've sent the money, you can't stop the house from coming back. That's right. What happens is the deed is transferred. Like in, in, in a smart contract with a house deed, the deed would be transferred to the new name as soon as the money was received and verified that the money had been received. And so the contract is written in granite as well as the things you move around. Is that right? So once we know the contract's in granite, then once I write in granite that I've sent you the money, I automatically get your house and then that's automatically written in granite too. That's right. Download the first chapter of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance, today. Visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to get started. There are some things about this that are really important. Now, every business model will not benefit from blockchain or smart contracts, but many will. In fact, there are the whole world of decentralized finance, DeFi, is based on this idea that you have people that don't necessarily know or trust each other that want to do business. And this is a a tool set that empowers that to happen. It's very good for a lot of new businesses that have yet to exist. And it's also good to cost cut. For example, we, use, we just use titles as an idea. You might use it for music royalties. There's a big business in NFTs right now that's a little hard to understand. People are not really getting how you can sell something that to somebody that you can easily download online for free. And I think that that is a valid question. And those are valid criticisms of the current NFT marketplace. All NFTs are smart contracts. All smart contracts are not NFTs. And so there is a world you can imagine where certain certificates of authenticity, which is what an NFT is, are really important. Title to a house is one. Is this 
diamond really the diamond you think it is? Is this container of, of goods real or fake? Is this particular item an authentically manufactured item or not? There are a lot of reasons why you might want to have an immutable ledger that is distributed and transparent. There's another giant myth of blockchain that blockchain is somehow totally anonymous, that a Bitcoin transaction is anonymous. That couldn't be farther from the truth. There are tainted Bitcoins. There are Bitcoins you will not be able to trade on an open exchange. What are they? There are Bitcoins that are in wallets that are known to have been extorted and people don't touch them. They're just sitting in these wallets. The people haven't been caught, but the Bitcoins haven't been used because the minute someone transfers that coin, no exchange will take it. But the minute someone transfers that coin, they're going to know it came out of a tainted wallet. People who think, oh, it's totally anonymous. There is anonymous. There are privacy coins like Monero. Right, Monero is really private. That is the coin of the of the privacy group. If you want to be completely anonymous, I mean like invisible, that's what Monero is. There are a lot of people trying to make that not true. And of course, everyone at Monero is trying to keep it true. So that's an arms race at the moment. It's practically impossible to trace a Monero transaction. But Bitcoin, how do you think the Colonial Pipeline guys got caught in 30 seconds? It was really obvious where that money went. There's nothing anonymous about a crypto transaction, nothing. So this idea that it's only for drug dealers and sex traffickers is nonsense. Or extortionists or you know, ransomware, it's nonsense. Monero, maybe, but Bitcoin, never. Use Ethereum, ETH, never. Any crypto that's transacted at Coinbase or Binance is traceable right to the wallet. Do you know who owns the wallet? You don't, but it doesn't take you a lot of time. The second that someone takes a piece of crypto, and makes it fiat currency, you know who they are. So th this idea of like, oh, it's just for that. No, it empowers a new style of business. And the other thing it empowers, Howard, that we haven't really talked about and probably should, and I don't cover it as deeply in the book as I will in subsequent writings, is Web 3.0. Whatever that may mean to you, I'm going to tell you what it means now. Web 1.0 was static web pages viewed on TCP IP through a browser. That was a friend, that's mid-90s. A decade later, we have the Web 2.0, the web we're on right now. You've got dynamic websites, audio and video streaming. It's the world we live in right now. Web 3.0 is different from Web 2.0 in the following way. In a Web 2.0 environment, you use a URL, a uniform resource locator to find a website. And that is a, a very specific address. And that address probably takes you to Amazon or a hosting service somewhere, or maybe your own servers on your own iron. It may be, but Mostly it's taking you to a, an address that's known. In a Web 3.0 environment, the websites will be distributed peer-to-peer -peer over peer-to-peer -peer networks. And the content, when it becomes available, will get a content ID because it can't have a location because by virtue of the fact that it's spread out over a peer-to-peer -peer network, there's no way it can have a single location. It can only have a single identity. And so the content will have identities as opposed to addresses. This changes everything. It really will end our, our reliance on big hosting services like AWS or on Azure Cloud. It's going to take big, bad tech organizations out of our lives. It will be on the internet. It will not necessarily be the bastion of 20 companies. And I think that change is going to be welcome. You know, Right now, Facebook has all your data. A Facebook that was built in a Web3 environment wouldn't be owned by anybody. It'll be owned by everybody. You could make money on it doing different things. It's like a completely different world, completely different world. So Web3 is coming. So if someone's running a business today on Web 2.0, are they screwed? 
is this still an opportunity for a big company to continue to make money or is web 3.0 this complete democratization so that the large enterprises no longer have the opportunity they had previously there will always be organizations that like to work with big organizations there will always be bureaucracies that like to work with bureaucracies and do not ever 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 count a company that's worth a trillion dollars out the big tech companies are made of money they know this is coming there's nothing i just said that everybody there doesn't know they will have their own versions of this everyone's got their own tolerance for risk howard every company you work with every company i work with there's a risk tolerance profile and there's a business continuity profile and there's like some people who they literally can need six nines of service. They have to. They can't be down for a nanosecond a year because of what they do. There are some places where two nines of service is fine. It's like, yeah, we're down for a week. It doesn't matter. Like, I, And every company has a lot of everything in there based on your risk tolerance, based on the profile of the company, based on what you need, who you need it with, who you're accountable to, are you publicly traded or not? We're going to see this evolve over time. There's no world where this is either or. It's going to be both for the foreseeable future and then each will become a tool that works perfectly for a kind of a business, and that's how it's going to be. But I tell you what, the things that I've seen that are being empowered by Web3 blow my mind, and it's really a brave new world. It feels like 1995 all over again. We're still waiting for the Mark Andreessen of the next generation. We're still waiting for whatever Netscape's going to be. Imagine that we're in the prodigy AOL you know, CompuServe era, and we're just about to get into like the world of browsers, and then we still have to evolve into like the world of apps from a metaphoric point of view. That That's where we are. It's the most exciting time. It's the thing that I'm spending a lot of my time doing. I, I don't know what the final form is going to be like, but this is too interesting. The technology is too exciting and it's too powerful to ever imagine that they're putting, to use another cliche, the toothpaste back in the tube. How's it going to get spread all over the place and what's it going to look like? But it it's out of the tube. That's the cool kid stuff. So if I'm running a company right now, what you want to be doing is what you've been doing. Pay attention in class and understand that today is the slowest rate of change you'll ever experience for the rest of your life. It's just getting faster and it's getting more interesting. Very inspiring. I love it. Shelly's book is Blockchain, Cryptocurrency, NFTs, and Smart Contracts, an Executive Guide to the World of Decentralized Finance. You can find that on Amazon or probably many other places. It's actually available on Kindle Unlimited even. That was very kind of Shelly. So if you have Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. I strongly encourage you to check it out. And Shelly, if people want to reach you in any other way, why don't you let them know other good ways to get in touch with you, your team, your work, that sort of thing. We are easy to find. Shelly at ShellyPalmer.com is my actual personal email address. ShellyPalmer.com is our website. It's just S-H-E-L-L-Y, no extra E. Send an email, Twitter, Facebook, you know, I, it's easy. I'm easy to find. Uh, Shelly Palmer, please reach out. Happy to answer your questions and help you any way we can. We have a daily email thing that's free. You, you can just go there and subscribe. Uh, we put out a, a rant every morning and, and relevant news. Uh, Saturdays, we do Crypto Saturday. Sunday, I write a thought leadership piece. On Wednesdays at 12.15 Eastern, I host a live stream called Crypto Wednesday. And we talk about cryptocurrency and we've got a bunch of salons and stuff. So it's lots of things to do at ShellyPalmer.com and lots of ways you can um, get involved. We have a private social network that you, if you're listening to a Howard Tiersky podcast, you definitely are automatically invited. It's called pgx.tech and you're certainly welcome to come there. Very interesting discussions every day. It's technology, media, marketing professionals that are dealing with the same things we've been talking about for the last half hour. So please come on down, hang out with us. We'd love to have you. 
Great. Well, thanks, Shelly. And uh, I subscribe to your daily rants. And I think of Shelly as the Lewis Black of the digital world. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to keep that. I'm keeping that. And I am also a member of PGX. Great community there. So I encourage everyone to take advantage of uh, everything Shelly has to offer. And join me in thanking Shelly for joining us as our guest today. Really fascinating conversation. Appreciate your time. And thanks, as always, to all of you for watching and listening to the Winning Digital Customers podcast. Look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, keep transforming. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Winning Digital Customers, the podcast. Find more great episodes at wdcpodcast.captivate.fm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, or wherever you listen. And visit winningdigitalcustomers.com to learn more about the Wall Street Journal bestselling book that inspired the podcast.